Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Politico Tech. Today is Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm Stephen Overly. There's a lot happening in tech today. August may be a little sleepy in D.C. because Congress is out, but the global microchip fight has entered a new round. China is now restricting the export of two minerals that are essential for making high-tech items like semiconductors, which Beijing says are needed to protect national security. But the reality, of course, is this is about biting back at the U.S. and its allies, who have limited the sale of chip-making equipment to China and are considering even more restrictions now. And China could inflict real pain here if it wants to, because it controls the global supply chain for many critical minerals. That's a huge vulnerability for Washington and Brussels, and they know it. I will be tracking how aggressively these new rules are enforced. Okay, now for a bit of a laugh. Elon Musk's haters are fighting the Twitter to X transition in their own small way by switching the app's icon from the new black and white X to Twitter's iconic bird. The Musk revolt marches on. Finally, some news we're reporting first on the podcast. Ronnie Chatterjee, who has essentially been President Biden's man behind the curtain on microchips, is leaving the White House this week. I spoke with Chatterjee for today's show. He joined the administration as chief economist at the Commerce Department just over two years ago, and he was put in charge of managing the global supply chain mess caused by the coronavirus pandemic. When Congress approved billions of dollars in new funding for microchip research and development, something the Biden White House celebrated, Chatterjee moved there to manage all of the agencies spending it. Now he's returning to Duke University. I caught up with him on his way out the door to ask what the White House should really focus on next when it comes to microchips, and now that other countries are getting in on the action, how to avoid getting played by companies looking for the best deal. Cool. Well, good. If you're ready, we'll start recording. All right. I'm, I'm set. Well, Ronnie, thanks for joining us on the Politico Tech podcast. A lot of countries are pouring money into the semiconductor space. The EU, UK, you know, South Korea, of course, China. There is this concern, I think, including among some in the administration, actually, about a subsidies race. You know, companies kind of pitting governments against each other to, to try to extract more money. And I do think we've seen some examples of that starting to to happen as more governments kind of move into this space. It feels like those guardrails to prevent that have not fully been figured out yet. I wonder what your kind of take is on on that and, and what those guardrails should be to prevent that sort of thing from happening. I really appreciate the question because I think it is a first order concern something that I've been watching closely since even before the CHIPS Act was passed. You know, as an economist, I really think we have to avoid these costly races to the bottom. We're all aware of these bidding wars that happen when economic incentives are being handed out. And whether it's state to state or country to country, um, you waste money that way. And I think I've tried to uh, implore all my colleagues uh, to think about it that way. Um, there's a couple things I think that are giving me hope, though, that we're going to get to a good solution here. One is that we have new and old institutions that allow us to talk with our partners and allies about these very discussions. I also think in my conversations with our partners and allies, I see a recognition that, you know, not everyone can do everything. There are some countries that are going to specialize in particular parts of the supply chain, given their existing capabilities, and others will focus in other places. Finally, I think that while I've seen a lot of different initiatives around chips around the world, 
we're the only one that's really taking this whole of government approach that I'm really proud of. Take me back, if you will, to when you first, you know, joined the Commerce Department in April of 2021. You know, we were still deep in the throes of the recession. Uh, supply chains globally were were kind of a nightmare, particularly for chips, which is what you've been living and breathing for the last two plus years. What were those early days like when you kind of look back on them now? Uh, well, Stephen, I don't think this will ever be a Netflix uh, series, but uh, you know, I, I can kind of picture it in my head when I came to the Commerce Department in April 2021. You're right. Uh, supply chains were the issue of the day. And you know, we had undergone a period of transformation uh, over the last 30 years where global supply chains had become increasingly sophisticated. We had gone to a just-in-time framework where we expected everything to show up exactly when we wanted it. Um, and a lot of the frictions that used to govern uh, global trade and commerce uh, had been evaporated. And during the pandemic, we saw that these supply chains were more brittle than we had thought and had implications for our economic security and our national security. And I still remember the first day I met Secretary Raimondo she had a supply chain question for me, but it wasn't about chips. It was about lumber. And she asked me why lumber prices were so high. As you remember, you know, I was the chief economist. I was covering a wide variety of domestic and international issues for her as her kind of chief political or economic advisor. And so for me, I had to go chase down a bunch of facts about lumber and try to unwind the supply chain. And that, Stephen, was the introduction to kind of the work I'd be doing uh, for the rest of that year, but also on the Chips, uh, chips Act, which is also a, a huge supply chain issue in and of itself. So it's, it all started with the wood. I guess, you know, in terms of setting things up now, kind of going forward, obviously, the world's a much different place now. The U.S. specifically is a much different place now, especially chips, you know, Congress having passed $52 billion in new funding for domestic research and manufacturing. As you're headed out the door, is the main action now kind of dispensing that funding that Congress has approved or or what's sort of still left to be done to implement, you know, this this major industrial policy undertaking? Well, Stephen, I'll, I'll give you my assessment of where we are today. Um, and I think lessons learned to start. The supply chain policy is something that's still relatively new in Washington and around the world. You know, I served in the Obama administration um, at the White House on the economic team. And if you had asked me back then, you know, who was in charge of supply chains, I wouldn't have necessarily known who to turn to. And it certainly wasn't me. Uh, but now a lot of us are focused on supply chains. And I think that new skill set is something that is going to take time to percolate through government. You know, we don't have the best data about supply chains inside government. When you look at the other things you cover, you know, the job market, wages, international trade, the government usually has the best data available on a particular topic. In supply chains, the private sector has that data, and it's often stitched together from a bunch of other firms. And to really analyze or make use of it, you need to have those good relationships with the private sector, partnerships to make sure that data uh, is in a position to be analyzed and also that the data can be reported. And that's an important sort of um, interface between business and government that I think needs to be developed in the coming years. When it comes to chips, though, in particular, I think the last year we've done a great job setting up um, capabilities that we never had before. And I think what's to come next is to see those funds being dispensed and some of the biggest uh, investments in the semiconductor industry and R&D that we've ever seen. And that, to me, is a really exciting place to, to do the handoff. As you're going to be on the outside looking in, is there a particular country that you're most sort of interested to see how it plays out or even concerned about how it kind of plays out with, with their own CHIPS program? 
I'll give you two. I, I really am interested in um, in Japan and Korea and how they're uh, going forth with their semiconductor strategies. They have uh, really specific capabilities in those countries related to key parts of the supply chain, long experience uh, in industrial strategy, and some really key companies. And so it's exciting to watch what they're doing. And obviously, those are close allies of the United States and places that we have a lot of dialogue. So from the outside, those are the places I'll be uh, looking for. Although, Across the world, you're seeing exciting initiatives in some places that haven't traditionally been part of this discussion, like India, that are stepping up in the semiconductor industry. Uh, exciting to see that as well. Well, one question that honestly I've had on my mind for months, and it's a question I need to pose to an economist, which is exactly what you are. Um, so good timing. Uh, and it's a supply and demand sort of question, because obviously during the pandemic, we saw really intense demand for microchips and as a result, a shortage shortage of them and, and companies that could not get them. Now, though, we're starting to see the opposite, where kind of global demand for chips has been quite soft. Exports from Taiwan and South Korea have been down considerably. I, I was just reading about Samsung's earnings also being affected um, by sort of this softening demand for chips. And so the question that's been on my mind is sort of, you know, how do we know that there will be a market for these chips that will come online and, you know, next five years, seven years, as these U.S. facilities actually get brought online? I appreciate the question. It's something I've been watching for a long time. You know, you saw some early uh, sort of earnings reports from key companies in the industry that let us know that demand for electronic devices, your computers, your phone was softening. And of course, that began to have an impact on the demand for things like memory chips, which are often the canary in the coal mine to other kinds of chips and, and verticals in the industry. So you're now seeing, right, from a conversation we were having when I started the Commerce Department in 2021, where there was a chip shortage, you're seeing much more discussion of, uh, of an excess supply of chips and the impact on prices. And of course, it's impacting companies in the industry. If you talk to business leaders in the industry, and I do a lot of that, they'll tell you that this is a cyclical industry. It always has been. But the long-term outlook, I think, can be indicated from the investments they're making. So you've seen $200 billion of investment since the CHIPS Act was introduced. Why are they investing in this these kind of facilities in the United States? It's because they think that the long-term demand for sort of the U.S. supply chain of semiconductors is going to be strong. And so you think about companies that are thinking about end products. They're thinking about the traditional ones around computers and uh, electronics, as well as military equipment and the grid, but also a rise in the availability of chips needed for or the, the use of chips and things like electric vehicles. That, to me, is why long-term, I think we're bullish on the demand for chips, though in the short term, you will see ups and downs and you always have. Um, but to me, given the time frame of these investments and how long it takes to actually build a fab, we should be less worried about the short term uh, up and downs of this industry and much more worried about having in place what we need to produce chips for what I see is going to be a growing market in the years to come. Well, my last question for you, Ronnie, um, you know, is just as you look out ahead, what do you think is sort of the next, you know, big industrial policy for tech that the U.S. needs to tackle. You know, it won't be it won't be your your problem uh, anymore now that you're you're leaving government. But, um, you know, what's sort of the next chips, um, you know, the next semiconductor crisis, if you will? I feel very lucky to have it had been my problem. For going forward and the other folks and the confidence that I have in the team to execute on this, I think I would flag 
implementation of the existing policies is really the biggest challenge for our industrial policy. So when you think about it, we've passed historic legislation, much more than most people recognized or expected that we could. And now the challenge is getting it right as we seek to make a transition with regards to carbon intensity, as we seek to build supply chain resilience in chips, making sure that the workforce, the technology in R&D, and the global markets piece all click together in a way that we're successful. To me, that's the most important thing we can do to make this economic strategy successful. And so my advice to my colleagues, the thing else I'll be watching most closely is the boring blocking and tackling of getting this stuff done, getting the notices of funding out, making sure that the awards are made, that the, that there's due diligence, and making sure that the complementary assets that are going to make these investments successful are in place. I guess maybe I lied in saying that was my last question because I you just <laughs> made me think of a quick follow-up, and that's... If the implementation is so important, what's one specific thing that could go and should go right? And then one specific thing that like could go wrong and how to avoid it? It's something I think about all the time. I think that when it comes to what should go right, what I think we're in a good position, I'm really confident that the teams that we built inside government, and a lot of this has happened you know, behind the scenes. It's not stuff that gets a lot of attention, but hiring the people to make the programs work well. When you think about the CHIPS program at Commerce to begin with, I mean, you need a skill set there, financial, technological, legal, policy, uh, that we didn't have before. And the idea that you have a hardworking group of people over there right now, paired up with career employees who've been expert in this for a long time, to execute a $52 billion initiative, I mean, that part gives me a lot of confidence that we're going to execute on the program and the dispersal of funds in a way that is um, respectful of the due diligence you need to do, but also rolls it out in a way that the American people understand the impact on their local communities. I think the part that I'm watching closely that I want us to focus on as much as we can and something I'll be thinking a lot about on the outside is making sure that the workforce is in the right place to take all these fantastic jobs. You know, there's going to be tremendous demand for people to work in semiconductor fabs, you know, the factories that make chips and in the supply chain. And they're going to need a set of skills that you don't need to go to college for, but you need to have training and you can eventually earn a really great wage. And we need to make sure that we're locked in with where those jobs are, how to get on-ramps into them, and making sure that our community colleges and other training institutes have the right programs uh, and reach the right people to get there. That's the thing I think that's um, easier said than done, something that I see a lot of excitement uh, around the country in, and something that I really want to go right. And we will need a skilled American workforce to make this work. And that's something that, um, that just has to go right for us to be successful here. Well, Ronnie, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Next time we talk to you, I guess you'll be professor at Duke. Enjoy the uh, move back to North Carolina. Thank you so much, Stephen, for your interest. And, uh, and I look forward to talking to you when I'm on the other side. And that's our show. As we get this thing off the ground, I want to hear from you. Whether you're a policymaker setting the rules or a technologist finding ways to break them or just a Capitol Hill staffer who has to explain AI to your boss, tell us how tech is transforming your world. You can reach me at techpodcast at politico.com or at Stephen Overly on most social media. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our senior producer. Steve Heuser is our tech editor. I'm Stephen Overly. Subscribe and follow Politico Tech for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Thanks for listening.